I, I think mm-hmm. I'll always kind of revisit shorts or at least write them or write them for other friends, whether I was making features. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. could obviously change because I want to make, a, you know, write a couple of TV shows too in the mix of features. But, you know, I think I have a couple more shorts I want to experiment with. And then I would definitely, just depending on how I would make it, as in like super indie mm-hmm. fund, you know, is it Kickstarter? Is it partial funding privately? Is it all those things that are uninteresting about film that we have to do? Mm-hmm. I don't know yet, but I definitely feel like I could, I could at least hold on to the horns or, or I could go eight seconds. I know that whether I break, <laughs> yeah. break my back on my legs, I would definitely get on a bull. Hey, what's going on guys? My name is Kenneth Jackson. I'm an actor from Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Trey Riley. I'm a writer director from Charlotte, North Carolina. And this is Cinevibes. Welcome back to Cinevibes, everyone. We hope you had a lovely Christmas with your family, however you were able to celebrate that. And I'm joined, as always, by my trusty colleague and co-host, Ken Jackson. And I have a few housekeeping items for you before we jump into today's episode, which is the last episode of 2020, episode 22. First off, as mentioned, this is the last episode of the season, season one, and also the last episode of 2020. Now, some of you are going to be very sad about that, and our hearts hurt too, but we're taking a little bit of a break before we dive into season two, which will begin on March 1st of 2021. With all those things out of the way, let's jump into the introduction for today to our last guest of 2020, and someone that we are very excited to have on the podcast with us today, and that's Justin Robinson. He's got a staggering list of camera and electrical department credits, and some of his more recent things that he's been doing on his own as a writer-director include things like Popeye the Pizza Man, Guest of Honor, Snowbirds, and his most recent film, which is actually a documentary called My Brother Jordan, which at the time of this episode coming out has over 12 million views on YouTube and just a massive reception across the world. Without further ado, let's jump in and talk with Justin. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, man. Yeah, thank you. Honored to be the last one of a weird year. <laughs> Absolutely. Figure we'd end on a good note. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I wanted to start off with asking, and I think this was touched on in My Brother Jordan a good bit, a bit about your backstory in filmmaking, because it just seems like you're such a creative person and you're so driven to be a filmmaker. And I just, I want to know where that comes from. Where Was it just innate? I think it was innate in a different way. So if you've seen the documentary, My Brother Jordan, it touches on my life pre-filmmaking, which was basketball. That was my life. That was my dreams. I had no concept of filmmaking or a job as a filmmaker, a director. I did not know. You know, there was a conductor behind the curtain. No idea. And Mm -hmm. was barely barely exposed to filmmaking at all. So it was basketball. And the, the mental tools that I had at the time were, you know, you had to be the last one training. You had to be the last one on the court because I wasn't the most naturally gifted. I, I had a, I had really good body control and I had really good like mm-hmm. mental conditioning because basketball is a major mental sport like most sports. So mm-hmm. for whatever reason, I was just kind of built mentally to play basketball. But then it was putting in the work to, you know, I wasn't that strong physically. So I had to work hard to f- fix my shot to not just shoot it like a little weak kid trying to shoot it 10 feet high. And also because I didn't grow. So a lot of my basketball, like mindset and work ethic translated to film whenever it kind of 
swapped over after my brother died, which mm-hmm. was the, you know, the origin story of the documentary is to share who my brother was. So basketball is, is where mm-hmm. I kind of learned how to direct indirectly w- mm-hmm. without knowing, you know, just, just looking at, you know, when you're in high school, especially in middle school, you got all these, you know, I did play co-ed a, a couple of times, but mostly it's guys your age and you're learning each other. Mm-hmm. You're also going through life. You're going through whatever puberty or whatever you want to call it. And you're learning mm-hmm. like the insecurities of the male syndrome and the, the silly traditions that that guys tend to follow and while doing that you're learning that person's really quiet why is that they don't have anything to say or that person's really mm-hmm. loud why are they talking so much do they actually have anything to say <laughs> and as mm-hmm. this spongy kid learning kind of what that person needed at any given time or, or if that kid liked to shoot from the outside or from the inside or didn't want to shoot at all because he was too shy to even talk let alone shoot right. a basketball let, even though he's on a basketball court so all of my like yeah. human connection and confrontational skills and I think innately directing what was from studying my teammates and coaches and and trying to set people up for success so I think all of it I can address or kind of find the detective like red string from crime to crime on my wall mm-hmm. like you can find <laughs> anything in my life back to like a basketball metaphor and go I think that's yeah. where I learned you know to do this to do that so but filmmaking mm-hmm. is is a, is something I'm always trying to finesse and learn. Just like a basketball, you know, you can never, you're you're gonna miss at some point whether you hit a thousand shots in a row. And I think you can never perfect mm-hmm. it. And although yeah. you know some Kubrick fan or Fincher fan might want to fight <laughs> me, no one's a perfect filmmaker. So I think there's something interesting yeah. to me about that where there's a you can strive for it. Not that anyone's I guess gonna go I'm a f- perfect filmmaker, but it's something that's I don't know fascinating to me in that way. But yeah, so yeah. I think basketball is the short answer. Fincher would uh, agree a little bit with the basketball <laughs> analogy since he has like a hundred takes for every. Oh shot. yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So yeah, that human connection—that was one of the biggest things. So I was going back through your catalog and watching a lot of your earlier work and i was just i loved the aesthetic that you had going on early on and then just watching the bts of uh behind the scenes of everything that was going on that connection it was definitely like visible your enjoyment for working with other creatives and i i just love that about your entire like work ethic on set i appreciate that man sorry and thank you for going through all the old stuff (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was telling just a brief story on how I came to find you. We were at a CFC meeting here in Charlotte, and you were showing Guests of Honor. That was my first one. And I I remember you were there, but either partially out of, like, fear or whatever it was, I was like, "Ah, I'm not going to go talk to him. And then I was like, ah, dang, I should have talked to him. (laughs) And uh, only because, like, I watched a film, I was like, holy crap, like, this is next level and you know some of the things i've seen around town are lesser than quality perhaps but that's another conversation (laughs) but yeah i saw that film and then i just started keeping up with you from there and went back and watched some of your old stuff as well and i found that in watching the bts primarily your attention to detail and maybe this stems back to basketball as well but you care about like the color of a lampshade that's like three layers back in the shot. Like how does that, (laughs) 
describe the character, like help allude to who they are. And I was just curious what, like if that was something that you've always just had, like this attention to detail, which obviously helps immensely with directing and being on set and making sure that everything that you're capturing is exactly what you want. Or if that's something that you've learned over time through failed projects or, you know, uh, that shot didn't quite work and I should have paid attention to that poster that was in the background. Like, mm-hmm. where does that come from? Well, I, well, I have two stories to lead into that answer. So that was my first and only Carolina film community meeting. Somebody had, I think, I, I can't remember who reached out and just said, hey, we want to, you know, we show stuff on Wednesdays or Tuesdays or whatever it was. Would you want to come? The film mm-hmm. was already out, I believe, or it was about yeah. to be, I can't remember. And I remember getting your message after and I was like, oh man, you totally should have, you know, I don't know how many people there are, but I want to be an approachable person, especially to filmmakers. But I know there's a lot of like fake celebrity to filmmakers that just like, sure. I'm just like you and and she's just like me in the same way that we're trying to figure it out. We're trying to make stuff. So, and that, and funny enough that we've never even met, but here we yeah. are. And also a funny detail story that I will transition into your question, your answer that night, you know, I didn't know anybody there. Uh, outside of like maybe two people because I just you know I was fairly new to this area and I just didn't go to things like that most often and I was sitting at this table and there was two gentlemen behind me and my wife and the film plays and it goes off and and it goes black and this guy behind me who I think is some sort of filmmaker locally like whispers to the guy next to him and you could feel like he was jealous that it, it looked better than maybe he wanted it to. You could just like, and this is not a toot in my own horn. He just audibly was mm-hmm. like, well, that wasn't as good as like the claps. I wrote down what he said. It was like, and he said it audibly, like it wasn't a suit. I'm sitting right mm-hmm. in front of him and he has no idea. And it was like on cue, like a movie. The host was like, and let's have the director come and say a word. And I get up and I could like hear him gasp. And from then on, from then on, apparently that guy gave his card to my wife and was just kissing my butt the whole time. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I, re- I remember what you said. So you never know who's sitting next to you at those meetings. That's Dang. why you should never treat a PA bad. Mm. You should never. You can give me, give me your card all you want, but it's going right in the trash because I know who you are. That's so a that was an interesting little the detail oriented. But to answer <laughs> your question, I was a kid that was very detail oriented. I, was, I wasn't the kid with like a messy room. I, I would have everything organized, my Legos in certain drawers, my Robin Hood Legos and my Native American Legos and my knight, medieval knight Legos. I would sure <laughs> mess up a room, but I was just a, a weirdly organized kid, like unnecessarily so. So I think just like mm-hmm. an actor that's done improv classes or done some acting classes or done no classes and they were just a server at a restaurant or they sold cars, like all of those life lessons are just tools that they can put into the bag that when they get in front of the camera, they can pull out. And it's, it's a, it's a role of a car salesman, whatever it might be for me, like every life thing I live through is just a a tool in my bag, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So like the detail stuff, it wasn't something where I was like, you instantly know filmmaking that I have to care about that lampshade or what's behind them or, or, you know, in Breaking Bad, if when you see the color yellow, like someone's about to be murdered, like I wasn't that, you know, philosophical or that bright, but my brain works in a detailed way where if I go to your house and I go to someone else's house, I study the room, I study the smell. You know, if you smell cigarette smell, it's an easy answer to go, oh, okay, so they, they smoke cigarettes. Or if it smells 
really bad. They might have bad stuff in the fridge that they, they just, they don't notice. So you get in somebody's car and you're like, man, this car really smells, but they've been in that car so much that they don't smell it anymore. Mm-hmm. Those are things that I, I, I just put in the bag of tools. So to answer your question, I think it was something that again, from basketball and just from life that transitions into film. And then coming up as a camera assistant, working on features, you, you get to hear and see a lot of things done most of the time the wrong way. There's the machine of the filmmaking that that is like how to do it. Okay, you 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 block and you light and you shoot and that that kind of philosophy. But relatively, you have a lot of bad direction. You have a lot of bad acting, a lot of bad, you know, writing. But you're there on the front lines soaking in all the details. And if there's a win, there's something beautiful. There's a great moment or a cinematographer was really kind to the to the costume designer. That's something I put into the, the bag. That's something. same way when that guy said something behind me that he shouldn't have. I put that in the bag. I remember that. So years down the road, whether it's for his good or for mine, I'll use it. So if I see that someone's being kind to someone on set, that's a detail. That's a win for me, no matter if the movie or the money I made on that movie is horrible. I take everything good mm-hmm. and bad and experience is an experience. And I've had a lot of bad ones, but I try to make them good by writing about them or using them in a film. So it's kind of a work in progress, but naturally I feel like I could have been like a good forensic crime <laughs> private detective or somebody in that world where they're like I kind of would have been a good bad guy for the good guys like I, I could yeah. think like a criminal but work on the other side I feel so partly that's mm-hmm. how I think I approach filmmaking you got a fallback career there if you need it yeah it's my backup be a bad guy for the good guys <laughs> <laughs> I love that uh two side like that two-brained approach that you bring to everything because you know, you work on your you do a bunch around the camera and like a lot of the credits that I saw, you did work around the camera, but also directing and writing and that sort of stuff, having that ability to be very technical and also be able to switch it to be very creative at the same time. I was interested in how you come up with the films and the stories that you make in writing and then your vision for a project as a director. Like, how does it go from like ideation? Is that something that you've just worked on over the years? Or is that, you know, what is the process like when approaching something new? Hmm. Well, I think like most people who want to make films or let alone write any type of writing, I think you have you know, say you have 10 ideas, you're probably only going to really like dig into maybe three of those at the immediate future in the sense of those mm-hmm. other seven ideas will we'll kind of taper off and go, yeah, we probably weren't the best idea. So I think my mind does a good job like interrogating ideas and, you know, like, mm-hmm. where were you on the night of the 24th? And they, <laughs> they have to tell me. And if they, if they don't lie, then they stay. And then that's probably what I end up outlining and writing. So the ideation is mm-hmm. like, you know, real life experience is something that I pull from all the time, whether it's like it could be, you know, a leaf I stepped on in sixth grade. The film's not going to be about mm-hmm. stepping on a leaf, but there's going to be a scene that was birthed of a kid stepping on a leaf and forever. You know, I'm just making it up as I go, but something so small yeah. can mm-hmm. contribute to something a lot bigger in my life. That's why I think the the being really spongy and quiet in moments, even if you're speaking, you're, you're listening. And so I was just a kid that you know, would walk into a room and I could take it all in kind of in one go and you mm-hmm. could kind of remember that space. And so I've, I'm able to like tap into my childhood, I think is important and kind of mm-hmm. those experiences that shaped me. Like my brother died, you know, 11 days before my 18th birthday. And of course, as they say, cliche or not, like you grew up really fast. And I think that was mostly true. I think I, I had already grown up a lot, just the way that I was. I think I was mm-hmm. more, I'm not a smart guy book wise, but street wise, I feel I could hold my own. 
So I think just everything mm-hmm. from from my life I'm able to put into what I want to make and what infiltrates my mind and what, what ideas stay around. But when it comes to when they have stuck around and I go, okay, now it's time. I try to block my time out to specify in one idea because I have, I almost have two hands mentally. Like I feel like I can, I can kind of write two things at once or like do some in the morning and then do some in the end. And, and maybe some people can do that and more, but I feel the best for me is to really hone in on one thing in like a month. Yeah. So just because I know mm-hmm. so many writers and filmmakers around my age or older, younger that have so many ideas and in, in the in the Apple cloud, so to speak, mm-hmm. but they never specify one. And so they might have two lines or a log line of that one and an outline of that one. But no one ever sees that because it's it's out in the cloud. Right. And I think for me, I just wanted to be able to stack up a library of work to go. It's right here. You can read it. It's physical. Yeah. This is the physical evidence. It's mm-hmm. no longer an idea that I might pitch you over coffee. And you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. It's like right here. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to go. Yeah. And so for me, it's specify, take a month and get it to a readable place so that it's not a mm-hmm. ethereal, invisible thing. And so I've tried to map mm-hmm. out my my life, my year in getting drafts done so that in five months I have maybe three or four scripts ready to read in some form of life. Rather than five, mm-hmm. like, oh, maybe I have this idea and I have a romantic comedy and I have a sci-fi. It's like, here's yeah. three things that you can mm-hmm. physically read. I could shoot them right now. So I don't know if that yeah. answers your question. I don't know where I get them, but a lot of life and then what just speaks to me. And my life has presented yeah. a lot of weird genreless movies without, I mm-hmm. think, they're, they're knowing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that you had talked about like these small details that get you this inspiration, like you said, like stepping on a leaf or something like that, it can bring something out of you and create a whole scene around it. And I feel like, you know, if I do write scenes or something like that, it does happen to where I'm like, you know, something from my life, it does, you know, something can be birthed from that, even though it's very small and it's very mundane. Mm -hmm. And like, that's what I noticed from a lot of like your earlier works was, you know, any given Tuesday, that was one single location that you shot that at. And that's one thing that I want like to do as well is to keep it simple and to keep it like, you know, big, but in a very small way. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I, I love that about your earlier works like number 14 and Riff Raff, just having those locations and doing the most you can with those locations, getting the most out mm-hmm. of it. So I, I could definitely see the like small details at work that you were talking about and i just i love to hear about like your creative process and everything about that man you speak of the those old shorts any given tuesday was i think 2014 again yeah i shot it one day in the woods you can see the sun go from one side of the film to the other by the end of it (laughs) my my poor colorist but that was only something to go and do because it was cheap and easy but just to experiment. Mm-hmm. I know so many filmmakers put so much emphasis on like, especially when I was coming up in college, the cool thing at that time was to make your first feature. That's all anyone ever said. They Short films are useless. Go make your first feature. So then you had a bunch of inept, you know, untalented, unskilled filmmakers making their first feature, which I'm not against making your first feature. But I think there is mm-hmm. a little bit to be said about you should make something before your first, like you're not going to walk out the door with, with no, you've wet. never worked on another set. You don't even know what a PA is and you're going to go direct. Most of the time it doesn't go well. And then you make a, a terrible feature that no one sees and it doesn't make your money or whatever. 
granted, I haven't made my first feature outside of a documentary, but for me, I knew mentally I needed to make a bunch of shorts and experiments. So mm -hmm. even that one was just an experiment to go and make something. I'm not worried about it being the best short film ever. Uh, I even had to act yeah. in it. So I'm starting uphill at that point. And mm -hmm. that is something that I even was going through some old blogs I was working on for Film Riot, YouTube channel that I worked mm -hmm. for. And one of them was called Cinematic Crap. That was the title of my blog. <laughs> and it was, I was like very, very little was written on it. And all I was trying to say was like those, those early things that you make, whether people see it at mm -hmm. the time and it's, it looks good for the time or in two years it ages really poorly that cinematic mm -hmm. crap, so to speak, is supposed to fertilize your next film. And that's too <laughs> yeah. metaphorical, but everybody <laughs> I think that's making stuff has made something where it might be private now on Vimeo or YouTube or, or you leave it on and go, yeah, mm -hmm. this is where I was five years ago. Look at where I'm at now. And so I think that was yeah. my philosophy then was I wasn't too super worried about this or that, but I, you know, number 14 was something I made to just have a stunt reel. I wasn't worried about mm -hmm. going to have fun with it. I was going to go hard in the paint and make the best film I could, but it was about one thing, one goal. And so mm -hmm. I could accomplish those goals, whether it's any given Tuesday going internally. I know what it is. Mm -hmm. I know it's not this, mm -hmm. but I stretch myself and I challenge myself to do something a little weird to, to, to try something, quote, horror or like number 14, do a little action mm -hmm. thing. And so I think letting go of the, the, the rational fear of making mm -hmm. something that's not going to age well rather than, I don't know. Right. There's, I don't know. There's a lot to be said for people who make films at all, whether it's good. I think that's mm -hmm. a... A major bold thing to be able to put your work out online and go this is what i did because people identify that mm -hmm. as you and the only thing you've ever done and mm -hmm. there's obviously a negative confusion in that part but all that to be said i think i want to look back and go i'm glad i made that i don't want to ever regret not making something i'd rather look back eight years ago and yeah i'm glad we did that we had a good time we had a good day i mean that was like the best day of our year was getting together and hanging out and shooting something in the yeah. woods whether it was yeah. you know so i found that you know, for myself, I tend to fall into this one lane, kind of like drama. I don't really have any desires to do any action films or uh, horror films or anything like that. But I've noticed with you, I mean, you do, at least more recently, a lot of drama films. But within that, you have a lot of different subject matter. And then I know just inherently that you have a comedic presence and I think that's been displayed in some of your films and other various things you've done. Do you feel like that you have a certain genre that you kind of thrive in? Or do you think that like, I can make a film in any genre, it doesn't matter if the story requires a horror film, like, boom, I'm making a horror film. Or if it needs to be a sci-fi, like we're doing this in sci-fi. Like, Where do you fall with all that? I think I fall mainly kind of in that dramatic world like the very simplicity of, I wouldn't say simple, but genre speaking. Mm -hmm. But at mm -hmm. the same, at the same time, my life has kind of been a genreless life. Like I'm not saying people are making jokes at funeral type of genre, but like mm -hmm. Fargo season one is kind of the closest thing to kind of my, the quirkiness, but then it's like, it's got drama. It's got kind of, I want to say horror a little bit. It's got a little bit of thriller. So I think I'm drawn to kind of like all, all things at once. I'm not naturally mm -hmm. drawn to romantic comedies or sci-fi or like horror specifically, or like mm -hmm. I'm trying to be a horror director. One thing I was talking to my wife last night was we were just hanging out, not really doing anything. And sometimes we'll watch Netflix. Sometimes we just read or chill. And I put on, uh, we just got Disney plus through my Verizon phone and 
was like, oh, wow, what's all this stuff? And I had Winnie the Pooh. And I just <laughs> like played one of these old Winnie the Pooh episodes. And it was just this like super sweet thing. And I was like, do you think people who write Winnie the Pooh could write like Fargo season one? Hmm. Or do you hmm. think people who write Winnie the Pooh only write not just Winnie the Pooh, but maybe an, maybe animated yeah. stuff? Like not many people mm-hmm. cross over. Like a lot of people make very specific, you know, Wes Anderson, those anomaly type filmmakers, they make Wes Anderson type yeah. films. Mm-hmm. But for me, I think drama is the first. And then I think that kind of like genreless Coen Brothers quirky world where you're like, wait, what, should I laugh? I don't, that was kind of funny. <laughs> and it's more about the characters than it is about genre. And I think the characters that I like or love to meet in daily life are the ones that kind of bring that out. And so mm-hmm. I, I don't, I'm not looking at like, ooh, a genre. But I am interested in anything. So yeah, if a film mm-hmm. needed a, a, a horrific aspect, yeah, or this or that, I'm I'm not opposed to it. But mm-hmm. if that answers your question, yeah, drama definitely brings out the character more than most other genres. I mean, obviously now we're seeing three, four, five genres all put into one film. Uh, but you kind of yeah. have that base of character-based drama that drives all of that. So I'm I'm definitely with you on that. Yeah. Yeah, so in Popeye, there was, you talked about in the BTS about how it was a melding of two different genres that you were kind of like, you don't know if it would work because you were talking about a serious uh, subject matter that a lot of people, they don't know, like they can find it hard to try and put that into words in a not so dreary way. And the ability and the style of Popeye the Pizza Man to not go into that dark place and stay there, but stay on some form of a like lighthearted level and not go deep into a sad like, you know, there were moments where I was crying and it was crying because of the internal conflict of the characters. But the rest of the film, like the in-between moments brought it back out of that zone. It didn't stay and dwell in it too long. And so I... Like that genre, uh, that not sticking to a single genre, I think is fantastic um, because I think sometimes it can be, you know, it, some writers or directors can feel like, you know, they got one thing to run after and you, you try to attack different uh, genres without having to think about it too much, right? Yeah, I mean, that that film in particular was a a thing to do to let myself be free. Cause I think a lot of stuff that I'm attracted to is a very like intense, very heavy, very dark, dramatic thing. And mm-hmm. at the same time, like the, my relationship with my brother who died, we were people that could have a serious conversation at night with each other. But you mm-hmm. know, at, at, at four o'clock that afternoon, we were running around with wigs in the yard, totally <laughs> sober. And that was just like what we did. So we could kind of hit the spectrum mm-hmm. of like total insanity, super homeschooled mm-hmm. shelter, really great conversationalist. Oh, you got beef on the court. You want to get confrontational? We'll we'll meet you there too. So we had these like, we could kind of fit anywhere. And so I think as a filmmaker, I wanted to free myself up to go like, this is the most Justin Robinson thing. And people might think it's a really sad, heavy thing, but Popeye Mm -hmm. was an exploration to kind of let myself open the door to those outsider characters that we all know or are ourselves. It's like, if you Mm -hmm. have this, you know, beautiful wide shot of a, funeral and you know sad like old school hymn music is going on and then the door back door opens and the camera like you know whip pans back and you see a guy in like a vest and camo pants that's kind of my brain like i want to let him come in i you know some people would want to shut mm-hmm. that type of person out i'm going to make a film about that guy yeah. and so i want to let yeah. him in the door because 
people that are the outsiders or, or you know, more quirky or the, the delivery pizza guy who's a little something's different about them. I think for mm-hmm. me, I, they have to go through the, th- the same things we go through. If we're an insider mm-hmm. and, and he or she is an outsider, they just might do it mm-hmm. in camo pants every day and we might do it yeah. in slacks. And so for me, I kind of, mm-hmm. I, I want to welcome those outsiders. And so that was a mm-hmm. film to, to let myself do that and to go for it. And, and years later this year, actually, I wrote a feature version of that. There was this lady mm-hmm. I met and very briefly and she was cutting my hair and we got to talking and, and then she's like, Hey, I, I color hair by the way, if you ever, and I had only colored my hair a few years ago for the, and I was like, you know what? I might, I might do that sometime. Ended up doing mm-hmm. it a few months later. And then the second time I was going to call her to see if she was working was like right when COVID hit. And mm-hmm. if I find out that she killed herself and she's like, mm-hmm. she was a wife, a mom, Dang. didn't know her well, met her, you know, I had two interactions with her. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. three days later, I revisited the outline of the feature, which is kind of different, kind of the same, but it deals with that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, suicide is a big part of it because Robin Williams died after I had written mm-hmm. the, the short. And that was kind of the motivation. Once, once I got news that mm-hmm. he had committed suicide was like, I need to make this movie for yeah. many reasons, but that was kind of a explorative thing based on this very recent feeling of someone I don't know and the sadness that comes around that. So Mm-hmm. But that's one of those films that swings to the fences with every with every move, you know. And it's it's like the lady who dresses in really flamboyant colors all the mm-hmm. time and wears the hats and all this stuff. It's mm-hmm. like she's got to go to a funeral yeah. the same way everybody else does. She just might not wear black. I kind of want to make a, a film about those people too that are just different in their own way. And Popeyes, everyone's very very different. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah, I saw that you were in the works with that feature film. And that was one thing I wanted to talk about as well is I don't know if you've worked on a like directing and writing a feature film. And I know the amount of like effort that goes into spearheading something like that. What what is your mindset going in attacking something like that? Is this something that, you know, you talked about the fertilization before with the smaller projects in the past? Is this something that you feel you can grab by the horns? And do you feel like that's something that you can attack now with like all of your strength in filmmaking? I think I'm I'm better suited than I was six years ago making those shorts. But <laughs> yeah, when the timing is right, and I don't mean that like I'm waiting for the perfect time. Obviously, COVID's happening right now, and I'm not trying to make a feature now. But I'm, mm-hmm. you know, life is kind of happening. I released a feature documentary this year and released a short film in June, and so it's kind of been. I was supposed to shoot another short this year, and then COVID changed that. So I'm kind of on mm-hmm. the fence, waiting if next year is gonna relent, like three days to shoot this film because it's one of the few that I have kind of in like my short film clip. I, I think mm-hmm. I'll always kind of revisit shorts or at least write them or write them for other friends, whether I was making features mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. could obviously change. Cause I want to make a, you know, write a couple of TV shows too in the mix of features, but you know, I think I have a couple more shorts I want to experiment with. And then I would definitely just depending on how I would make it as in like super indie Mm -hmm. find, you know, is it Kickstarter? Is it partial funding privately? Is it all those things that are uninteresting about film that we have to do? Mm -hmm. I don't know yet, but I definitely feel I could, I could at least hold on to the horns or or I could go eight seconds. I know that whether I break, (laughs) break my back or my legs, (laughs) I would definitely get on a bull, so to speak. But I don't know when that'll come, but I'm, I'm just trying to stack Mm -hmm. up my library so that when, people come or they you know somebody that has the level of power to green light something that I'm not green lighting myself because I was talking to a friend of mine he's a basketball shooting coach and has a big following on Instagram and we 
message a lot about like not waiting for a place at the table, a seat at the table, mm-hmm. you know, that most filmmakers are waiting for that perfect producer that's going to have their best interest in mind forever and make them money and make their most creative, unique, original mm-hmm. ideas. That's not really realistic for a lot of people. And so for me, he's like, we talk a lot about building our own table because, you know, mm-hmm. we have the same wood hammer and the nails or, you know, screws or whatever you want to metaphorically say. And I, I kind of take that under my way of thinking is you know, I'm not waiting for anybody, but at the moment I'm waiting for a world global pandemic to chill out. But yeah. also just kind of also having options that are very different from feature to feature. So that if someone likes a particular mm-hmm. thing, I'd say, yeah, I'm willing to make Popeye the feature first or this totally other random one or this really heavy, you know, very serious one. But I, I still write my features in a way that are achievable. I think more than, mm-hmm. It could be because I, I know a lot of people write very big and well, that's a $90 million movie, man. That's no one's going to give you that on your first <laughs> go. So unless yeah. you want to make it, you know, have at it, write the biggest thing you can ever write, but also I think be able to write smaller. I think it's both their skills and I'm trying mm-hmm. to stretch both. But at the moment I'm trying to find a middle ground of what's interesting to me, but also like how I could manageably shoot myself because I don't just want to direct everything. I would love to write mm-hmm. for other directors eventually. The stuff that mm-hmm. I want to direct, I'm, I will hopefully write. But at the same time, I want to be able to some be someone who can write just to write. Because I know a lot of directors yeah. are good story people, but they're not like writers. And I kind of want to be able to do mm-hmm. both well. So yeah, all that all that to say, uh, one day, yeah, I'm ready to grab the horns. But when you write just to write, without the intent of directing, do you feel like you can open up that space more and? write that 90 million dollar movie or are you ever just like i don't know like i might end up directing this or maybe i just want to write it as of right now i'm trying to write all the ideas that i know i want to direct or at least 99 percent sure so that that i can free creating yeah so i can have like a library of stuff that i know i would love to and Mm -hmm. i would love to make happen but if something you know, life happened or I die in 10 years and I have all these scripts. I'd love for Scott Cooper to come and make of them or <laughs> Jeff Nichols, you know, somebody, uh, you know, so I'm kind of trying to free my mind so that I can kind of almost write more spec or write the the bigger things. Like I'm working through an idea right now that, that kind of surprised even me and I don't really surpri- get surprised. I don't like surprise mm-hmm. birthday parties, but mentally <laughs> I don't really surprise myself or get surprised. Mm-hmm. So I'm working through like stuff like that where I, where I've interrogated enough to go like, yeah, that's weird. That's like an A24 movie that you're like, I don't know what I just saw. And I'm just trying to like, see if I can write that. So it's a mm-hmm. test for me to go. Can I, would I be willing to let someone else direct that? And I've shared it with a, a few, like just director friends and they want to mm-hmm. read it. So it's like, well, I'm going to write it at least. And that's kind of one of the ideas that I'm like, I don't know, maybe I would love to direct, but that's something mm-hmm. that I'm, I think I want to stretch myself in. Like, what would that experience yeah. like as a be as a writer? Because many years ago, I wrote a short for a director that was, it was for a Canon release film. One of the new Canon cameras was coming out. Mm-hmm. And so there was three directors pitching with scripts to be the director. And he was the last two, one of the last two directors. And he had chosen my script out of a bunch to take mm. to Canon and say, this is the one I want to make. And it went against all the rules that they wanted. It went against like, you know, the stipulations that they wanted to, to show off of the camera. I just wrote something that I wanted to, right and he was like man you don't listen to directions well you're lucky i love it and he took it to this thing and it got greenlit and then like three weeks in they thought it was this and it went got canned but it was like a three three hundred thousand dollar short film that could have been shot for like Mm. three grand 
So I almost had that like writer director experience. And then that same director mm -hmm. came back a couple of years later and tried to make it again with another lens company. They greenlit it mm -hmm. for like three weeks. He was in pre-production, was trying to cast. It got canned. So that mm -hmm. script mm -hmm. led to the character in that script led to a feature I ended up writing a few years later. Mm -hmm. So I always kind of wondered what that purely writing experience would be like. Mm -hmm. Just to go, would they do a better job than I would? Would they do something totally different? Would I be okay with it? And I kind of mm -hmm. am curious of that. So partly, yeah. also, I, I think I have so many stories I want to tell. It might just have to, I can't direct them all. But also, mm -hmm. I think I want to be able to tailor my voice to someone else's and go, like, Scott Cooper should make this. Yeah. Yeah. This guy should make this. This girl should make this. So I'm figuring it out. I'm, I got a long road ahead, I think. Yeah. I think that that whole going against the grain type thing, like you were talking about how it was sent to them and they were kind of like, oh, I, I don't know about this, you know, meeting these standards or whatever they had set forth for what it should be. I think that's a good segue for what you talked about with my brother Jordan and how like a lot of these like bigger, like, you know, you tried to pitch it to, you know, a bigger platform, but they were just saying this isn't, really working out it's a i think the biggest thing was they said it was too intimate right too and personal. i want to know what that was you know like with segueing into my brother jordan making this you've been making that since 2008 right since he died 2012 yeah he died in 2008 four years later is when i started and then from start to okay. finish it took me eight years from when i shot the first interview to when i mm -hmm. exported the film earlier this year in january 2020 mm -hmm. but yeah it was initially okay so a little backstory, my brother, we were really close. He was the third born. I was the fourth of four. We were a perfect match. Soulmates, it made sense for us to live together. And we moved around a mm -hmm. lot. And so we were always consistently together. We played basketball together. We made videos together. And then, you know, his freshman year of college, he gets cancer. 13 months later, cancer eats him up and he dies. It's really awful. Mm -hmm. He had been dying for months. Like it was the gnarliest thing I've ever seen physically. And then of course, mentally, mm -hmm. everything comes in that. And, and Jordan was the guy in the background of everyone's life. He wasn't the, the leading role. He was definitely like the supporting cast that no one really paid attention to until the credits rolled. And they're like, oh yeah, that guy was the best actor in the movie. Now Jordan was mm -hmm. an actor. I, sorry, I speak in metaphors too much. No, trying to break myself going. of it. But uh, so, so four years later, I, I think it took that time mentally and emotionally to like, you know, gird up my loins, so to speak, to, to get ready to like tackle this. And so even when I started in 2012, it was just interviews. I had no idea. I think people pitied me at first, like, oh, that's cute. You're going to make a documentary, you know, and they're, they're mm -hmm. picturing like the cutest little terrible effort slideshow of pictures. Right. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, I don't make documentaries, but I'm going to do it like I've done everything else. I'm going to give it my best shot. So a few mm -hmm. years into that, I owned up to being in it and to, to doing the narration and being your tour guide to, to meet my brother. Cause I thought, he would not, you know, he was this person that wouldn't introduce himself. Someone would have to go, Hey, this is right. Jordan. And I wanted to speak for him because in life I could almost speak on his behalf on a regular basis. Cause he was soft spoken and very shy and I was outspoken and not shy. So that's mm -hmm. why we worked well. Yeah. And a lot of people say opposites attract and often that's not true, but me and Jordan, you know, it was, if we weren't brothers, it might've been different, but the way that it, our lives melded, we were just like, we were locked and there was no way of unlocking us. So mm -hmm. Wanting to tell this story was also wanting to remember Jordan because I f death is hard for people to talk about and weird. And so people were uncertain of what to say. And all I 
knew what to say was like, do you not remember how amazing Jordan was? So mm-hmm. that's what led to the film. And then, you know, started on this eight year journey of trying to pay and shoot. And this is in the DSLR days. So it was just me in a 5d and, you know, busting mm-hmm. your head that way and running a lav mic into 5d, which is not going to create good audio, but that's all I had. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So years later, just editing. And then, the, then I started to get more serious in 2015 said no to like almost everything in my life and then just started working away at it. And then January of this mm-hmm. year, I finished it. And then I, that was when I tried to figure out what do I do with it? Cause my initial idea was mm-hmm. and goal was just to share it with people. It was something mm-hmm. I didn't want anything in return. I wanted to be with you in a theater mm-hmm. and show it to you. And for people that knew Jordan get to remember and for people that didn't get to know him. And then of course mm-hmm. COVID hit. So kind of all of my friends and colleagues in the industry that were like, oh, I'll pass it along to someone. They, they know someone at Netflix or this person knows someone at Voodoo or they, you know, do this. And so I kind of reached out through through those friend circles to pass it along just to go. I'm just curious of what's out there because who knows? I don't know. I'm not a seller. I'm not a salesman. I don't have an agent mm-hmm. or a manager. And mm-hmm. so then it got back of a lot of people saying, oh, it's really great. But then often the phrase came back of like, it's too personal. And then some mm-hmm. people said, oh, it's 63 minutes. It should be 70 or it should be 50 <laughs> or it should be longer. Mm-hmm. And or you should cut your coach out of it, which he's in the documentary a lot. He was very important in our lives. And then, you know, about a, a year before I locked the edit, he randomly had a heart attack. Mm-hmm. So that became a part of the documentary, which I never planned for, which expedited the finishing out of even more because, you know, mm-hmm. he was like yeah. the second leading role character in the documentary. So. People were like, mm-hmm. oh, I think you should maybe cut him out of it. I got that a lot. And I was like, well, mm. that's not happening. You know, if it, yeah. th- I'd rather this film be for me and this is what the story is rather than it try to please someone else. Because I don't live my life that way and I'm not going to make a film mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. And also yeah. these people aren't offering, you know, $50 million to these directors that they make these decisions where you go, that's a terrible movie. You're like, guy got paid $50 million. Like, <laughs> of course he mm-hmm. said yes. He's not like creative stuff isn't, you know. 50 million is creative for him right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, it was just people saying, oh, maybe you should do this and, and thinking they have the recipe and me knowing this is the story. Mm-hmm. This is absolutely the story. You can like it or don't. You can appreciate it or don't. I don't mean no disrespect, mm-hmm. but it didn't lead to anything. And then also when COVID kind of took over, all of those same people that have connections were also like losing out on their own connections because of COVID. So whether they got into like Cannes Film Festival or Tribeca, their films were supposed to be being seen by other colleagues and now they can't. So they're like, well, I don't know what you're going to do because you have this super personal film and we have this like very widespread film. And so it was a weird thing to even ask Mm -hmm. for help at that time. And then the whole time in my gut, I knew, you know, the probably the most me thing is to put it on my own Vimeo and my own YouTube, which people will judge. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. that's, it goes, it goes to those places when it dies or, you know, you should do festivals, but then festivals are all virtual. So you're not having that same, you know, face-to-face connection. So I just went with mm-hmm. that because it on the day I released it, which was August 19th of 2020, it was 12 years since he died. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. I had to live with this mm-hmm. story for 12 years, you know, and eight, yeah. eight years of making it. So for me, I needed it to be done. I needed it to be mm-hmm. out of my, you know, about killed my 2011 iMac desktop that project so i was like i retired that computer i was like it's in my closet (laughs) so in a lot of ways i needed to like you know i had even 
shaved my head when I finished. I was like the ceremonial mm-hmm. thing that I just needed to be like done with that phase so that now I could tell it. Mm-hmm. It was one of those ethereal script ideas that now I could let you read it. And so mm-hmm. then put it out for free and surprisingly it kind of picked up and got in the YouTube algorithm and was trending in certain places and, and now has 10 and a half million views in three months. So it was like a mm-hmm. total, you know, never would have thought that would happen. Never would have yeah. thought it wouldn't have never happened, but I'm not a viral person. I've never tried to make something viral. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I don't get too high or too low. So it's not going to like make my life. If it gets 10 million views and it's not going to break my heart if it gets 10,000. So yeah. for me, it was a win because people that didn't had no reason to get to know Jordan got to know Jordan. Yeah. Like even yesterday, I zoomed with a family in Australia who their their son in high school had seen the film and he was having some really hard things going on in his life and was some discourse in the family and wasn't talking to his dad. And what brought them together was him after a month and a half of not talking to his dad going, Hey dad, I saw this film. You should see it. And they Mm -hmm. watched it together and they like wept together. So the dad was like, Hey, it's my son's birthday. Could you zoom us in Australia? And they're living, you know, whatever it was, how many hours into the future compared to me, but we like zoom (laughs) zoomed their Sunday morning, my Saturday night. And we talked, you know, Australia to, to Charlotte, North Carolina about, like love and empathy and life and brotherhood. It was just really beautiful. That's that would amazing. have never happened mm-hmm. thanks to the YouTube yeah. algorithm and people sharing it. So obviously, you know, as a filmmaker, when people share it, it helps. Mm-hmm. But I was never someone that ever asked an actor, asked a crew member, hey, can you please share it? But this was the first project mm-hmm. where I was like, hey, it would be really helpful. If you dig it, please mm-hmm. share it. And people did. And, you know, a story like the Australian family where I'm Zooming these people going, how cool is this? Like, it's because of Jordan. It's because of all those nights staying up working. Yeah. These are the people that needed that needed to see it. I needed to tell it, yeah. and they needed to see it. It was just this beautiful kind of crazy moment that you could never plan or wish for. So that's been a cool thing mm-hmm. of part of, you know. And I'm not saying putting it out on YouTube for free is the answer for everybody, but for me, I needed it to be done. And and in some mm-hmm. return, a lot of people got to see it via COVID. Mm-hmm. Being at home, quarantine, lockdown probably helped for them to be available mm-hmm. and go, yeah, I have an hour. Mm-hmm. An hour now is is five minutes compared to pre-COVID, an hour. They were, no, nah, I'm not sitting down for an hour on YouTube. But yeah. So I think right. it, it had a weird, like, Everything a lot of together. circumstances. Yeah, getting Perfectly. lucky and, yeah, so it's been a journey. But I'm glad yeah. to be done and mm-hmm. glad to tell that story that way. I kind of hope that all those folks that passed on it are seeing it now and, like, oh, shoot, like, there was a... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, market for this type of thing because I mean we're all humans like for me I know exactly mm-hmm. why it connects with me and you know I've shared my thoughts on that with you already but if you could like sum up maybe if you can like why do you think this particular story aside from the YouTube algorithm because I mean it is 63 minutes or something like mm-hmm. that and you know, that's a commitment for YouTube videos. Yeah. Why do you think this has hit so many millions of people? Like, what in it is, like, the through line for humanity? The easy answer that might sound cliche is Jordan. He just was someone that could sit on anyone's couch in the world, and they would feel comfortable having him sit on their couch. They wouldn't worry that mm-hmm. his shoes might be dirty. They wouldn't worry if he didn't wear deodorant that day or that he said something off color. They're just comfortable because he had that presence. Like a, I described this somewhere recently. I was like, man, Jordan was like a blanket to somebody when it's kind of cold outside. 
just kind of comforting and soft and gentle. And when you take that blanket off, when it's not there anymore, you, you miss it. You feel the difference of it being there and not being there. And then also, I think, you know, it took me a while to own up to being myself in the documentary, being raw and vulnerable. And I think a lot of people connected with that because, you know, just as a male, as a guy, there's not a lot of things where people are being really vulnerable mm-hmm. unless it's a movie and it's an act, you know, they're acting, but like how many real life things, when you see something, you kind of have to step, stop and watch it when someone's being really vulnerable and it's genuine. So I think coming out of the gate with an opening like that, of just telling it like it was, I think that makes people at least stop and be curious for a minute enough to get to know Jordan. So I think mm-hmm. being vulnerable will serve, serve that film well and being honest because you know, everyone kind of has a mask or has a, a shield emotionally or you don't get to know that a lot of people on a certain level. And, you know, of course, mm-hmm. social media contributes to that. We know each other, but we've never met. And this is the closest thing we have. But there's nothing like getting to know someone face to face time and time again in, in times of adversity or even in a small moment of getting to know someone. So I wanted people to know me is to know Jordan. And so I think that contributes. But the ultimate answer is just... I mean, when you see the thumbnail, there's not—it's not an extravagant thumbnail. I'm not someone that's like, "Whoa, whoa, look here, look yeah. here!" Uh, you know, loud, mm-hmm. colored font. It's like it's a picture yeah. of Jordan smiling, and that's all mm-hmm. I'm trying to sell you. And, I, and that's a a poor choice of words to say sell, but I think you want to know who that mm-hmm. is, and you know who that is when you see it. Yeah, yeah. that's Almost the guy. Immediately, you know that. Yeah, I the honesty, I think that was one of the biggest things for me when I was watching it was just how honest you were in it. And then everybody that you had in the film as well talking about it, it was just something that wasn't, you know, it wasn't. And I think that's something that a lot of the times, you know, we we have these walls and it's something that as an actor I work on, too, is like we have these walls that there are some things we just don't talk about or we skirt by. And I think the documentary did a good job of like bringing down those walls and it says it's okay to know that you know it's okay to cry about this or not only that but just like get to learn about this human and then something that happened but you know in memoriam to him right and I think that it just was very personal and I think that personal uh experience with you narrating it was extremely like hitting home with me as a viewer and that's something that I think was extremely powerful about it. And that's that's what I would say about the film was what made it so powerful for me. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for watching, man. Yeah, it was. And I th- again, mm-hmm. it's a testament. And when I look back on a film I made six years ago, you can see the things that you did wrong, obviously. Hopefully the day you shoot, when you go back and look at the footage, you can see what you did wrong. But for me, when I look back at some of the documentary, there's so many technical things with it. every type of camera from super eight to now I've used. So my poor colorist again had a hard time doing anything, but I look back and go like, I'm glad that I finished it. Cause often mm-hmm. we look back at our regrets and there are certain regrets I have about that. Oh, I should have invested in better audio long before now, but mm-hmm. I'm, I don't have the regret of making it. And I don't have the regret of making it with going like, I don't care what people think you can watch mm-hmm. it or don't. And again, I don't mean any disrespect or I'm not trying to be pompous, but that's my kind of the way that I think to go. It's important for me to do this. I know the importance of Jordan and somebody needs to tell a story and I'm the only one who can do that. And so, cause I think so many filmmakers, we get caught up with what, it, what what's in right now. What's hot. What, what is people, what are people going to like? What screen grabs look good? Mm-hmm. What, and all those things. And I think it's such a dangerous fleeting thing to not make who you are, who mm-hmm. you are 
and what you're supposed to make, I think is what we're supposed to do. And, you know, you Trey might make something totally different than me, but you're supposed to make that. And I'm supposed to make mine or whoever it's like the right. differences are, are, are the beautiful things instead of us all trying to make the same thing and be the next whoever. So for me with the doc, I look back and I am thankful that I made it with that mindset again, not to be a douchebag, but I don't care what you think. And yeah. I don't care if you think it's going to be, I know what the story is. And I think the purity of that is, is what people can connect with if they do. But mm-hmm. I don't think you can make things that way all the time necessarily, but it's kind mm-hmm. of my life philosophy in some ways of there's just too many things to worry about. If you care about mm-hmm. it, what everybody thinks that's too much baggage. Mm-hmm. So It's definitely something that I've had to work on in general with filmmaking and my good friend Gavin he's really good at doing this but you know he talks about making his films for the audience of one himself mm-hmm. and yeah. if you're doing that whether it be my brother Jordan your first feature whatever projects you end up doing like you really can't be disappointed at that point because yeah. he did what you set out to do and there's going to be at least one other person out in the world that's going to dig it. Like, it's just, mm-hmm. we're too similar as human beings for that not to happen. And in some cases, it might be millions of people. In some cases, it might be five people. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really great mindset that you have. And one I'm trying to do better with because I'm always like, well, like, I really hope a lot of people watch this. And <laughs> yeah. sometimes it might just be like 12. But and that's not a bad hope to have that as many people can see it. I mean, people say that about anything. They make an Instagram post and they want as many people to watch their their business video or yeah, whatever. Whatever it but is. I, yeah. But I think there is a beautiful thing. I've shared this. I have a few filmmaker friends that like if I was rich, I would fund whatever they wanted to make because not only do I think they're that talented or that unique, I think emotionally and mentally the most beneficial thing for them ever is not this or that or whatever mm-hmm. people might rec- It's making that film. It's telling that story. You need to get it out. And it could be a sketch. It could be a three-minute thing that we all laugh at. And I think that's some of the, the best therapy we can do is, you know, you might make a film that 12 people might see, but it was so healthy for you that in five years the film everybody loves. It only happened because you made that film that only 12 people saw. Yeah, and I think that's that cinematic uh crap thing that i was talking about i think that's the beauty that will fertilize that next thing whether you and and then it will encourage you to do what you wanted to do because you needed to do it i think that's an important thing i actually wrote that down on a sticky note so i'm (laughs) gonna definitely (laughs) keep that in mind moving forward nice also you mentioned that your brother was like a blanket metaphorically for people which i agree with i think your voice is a blanket in a similar type of way because <laughs> like Kenneth mentioned in the doc, like you have a lot of voiceover in it. It just feels like it sits well on your ears. And I think mm. our listeners will agree with that as well, but I just want to throw that That is out funny. There. That's a really uh, brilliant sentence. It sits well in your ears. That's funny. Yeah, a couple, a couple <laughs> of filmmaker friends would like, yeah, you should narrate more stuff, which was never in my yeah. future or rear view. I just knew that I had to do this. And so, you know, I didn't even, I built a little voiceover studio at where I worked in Film Riot mm-hmm. and just would pound it out on the weekends. But that was never a thing that I even thought about. But doing a handful of podcasts or doing voiceover, there's such a, a purity to, to telling it from your soul and using mm-hmm. not your inside voice, but your 
but that is a funny aspect of, of that. Like someone said I should do a, do an ASMR YouTube channel <laughs> mm, and I didn't, mm. I didn't know much about it, but I, I did delve in and you know, I do your research on it. Yeah. I was like, yeah, not for me. Here's a, you know, that's right. all I can yeah. do. I don't know. Do, that's a sticky do you know note. the haircut? That one's always a popular one. <laughs> oh, I don't know that one. I'm an I'm a ASMR um, rookie. I was just like, wow, that's a weird, like, backhanded compliment. Compliment. You should, you should whisper me to sleep. <laughs> like, right. no, nah, I'm good. I'll stick to writing scripts. But Little too. Appreciate it. <laughs> but Trey Riley told me it sits well in the ears, so. There you go. It's a compliment of 2020 yeah. right there. <laughs> That's fantastic. With uh, do you have any like any advice that you would give to creatives? I know we we talked about you know not being afraid to put something out there as a creative. Is that something that you think you know that's some good advice? And then also like, what else would you tell someone starting out in film or someone starting to direct, write, whatever it is around the camera? Hmm. Probably a lot. I was watching a Netflix limited series called Fear City about these New York mobsters back in the 80s and how they ran mm-hmm. the city and ran all these unions. And it was research for something. And, and I just kept coming back to the three things that these guys instilled on the world was like, what was it? Fear, corruption, and violence. Mm-hmm. And fear, obviously, is a big one. Violence causes fear. Corruption causes fear. And scaring people makes them fearful. And so I think there's so many things in life to fear, not mobsters, hopefully, in the world that we live in right now, but there's so many legitimate life things that will be scary. But I think Mm -hmm. having fear of putting yourself out there or writing something and making it and going, oh, I'm not a good writer, I think is there's a there's a healthy like nervousness and anxious to that. But I think there's a legitimate like lethal dose of fear that can ruin aspiring filmmakers to becoming filmmakers. You know, you Mm -hmm. have to eventually, if you're making stuff, you have to no longer say aspiring, you know, take Mm -hmm. it off your bio and put filmmaker because you're making films, whether you're Steven Spielberg or a guy in college that made two things with his friends. So I think there's a a level of fear that humans have the capacity of that we have to mentally battle. And I think that Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't start that fight until it's too late and they're going to lose every time. As and making a film is scary. Making a film, writing a film, is this good? Sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you innately know there's something here. I just have to be able to get it out as pure in its most pure form, mm-hmm. you know, uninundated by all these fingerprints and DNA that are of the people making it. So I think fear is something that I would try to keep people away from, you know, like there's a healthy mm-hmm. fear of looking both ways before you cross the street. <laughs> But you can't be someone that sits on the sidewalk forever just because cars sit on the road, especially if you have something or someone on the other side of the road that you have to get to. Mm -hmm. I think that's Mm -hmm. no way to live a life and that's no Mm -hmm. way to write. You know, I don't ever feel writing is something that you're making up. Like, try it. Yeah, write it in a different genre. Go for it. Why not? Can you write Winnie the Pooh and write Fargo season five? I don't know. Maybe you can be the first. Maybe I can be the first. Maybe you have no intention to write a kid's story, but like... Why not? Why couldn't you? Couldn't you be that well, right. that well versed of a human to do both? Mm-hmm. You're not just a personality type two. Like you're capable of every feeling in the world. You might be a mm-hmm. personality type whatever, but you're capable mm-hmm. of every human feeling, every human thought. And I think that we're we're much wider of a genre of people than we realize. We segregate our lives and our, our skill sets to like one genre mentally. Mm-hmm. And I think that contributes to the fear of not making something or 
waiting for the perfect time. So I think fear is something. If I could shorten that all down to, I would encourage people to be more fearless. And I know that's no easy. It's a lot easier said than done because people mm-hmm. live their lives strategically based on fearful decisions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's no way to live and that's certainly no way to write. And so I think maybe freeing themselves by doing it a couple times and then make being a little less fearful, I think mm-hmm. is, is a good place to start for people because fear, like New York, like the mob, it runs everything. Fear when it's just, you know, kind of silly when you think about it, but... Fear can be also really helpful. So I think knowing when it's real and when it's not is a is a good basis to make films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely agree. All right. Well, as we try and wrap things up here and be mindful of your time, how can people find you? What are the My, Instagram MySpace. handles and all that? Oh, MySpace. MySpace, nice. No, it's a good place to start. Yeah, no. I'm on eight. all the social media: Instagram, Twitter, a website, Vimeo. YouTube and YouTube. My YouTube has some old sketches and stuff that date back quite a few years. So if you're into seeing what I made when I started, but yeah, pretty much most social media things. You just type even in on your TikTok name and now. they'll find it. Hopefully, it shouldn't be too hard. Yeah. I know if you type in my brother Jordan, it's a top thing. So definitely go check mm-hmm. that out on YouTube or Vimeo if you're into that thing. Yeah. And we yeah. really appreciate your time. Want to have you back on and. Maybe even when you have your first feature done, that'd be cool. Oh yeah, that I'll, I'll have something better to say. No, I appreciate <laughs> it, guys. It's great to great to be on, and thanks for doing it. I know a lot of podcasts can be very beneficial to a lot of mm-hmm. young, old, our age, whoever filmmakers. They might never reach out to you, but there's gold to be, you know, mined, mined mm-hmm. from these things. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So I appreciate I, it. Definitely a lot. A lot of what you said, I think will resonate with a lot of people and a lot of your work ethic, I think is fantastic. So it was just awesome to sit down and talk with you. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Anytime, man. Hope you guys enjoy this and round out your year. Right. And mm-hmm. we wish everyone well in 2021. Same to you as well. Justin, hope you can get that next short going. Yeah. Same to you, man. Godspeed. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. See you guys. Later. All right. Thank you guys so much again for listening. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Justin. He's an extremely, like, you go back and watch his catalogs, all that sort of stuff, BTS. You'll learn a lot about him. You'll learn a lot about him in watching My Brother Jordan. Definitely go check him out and anything that he's working on, follow him. He's definitely one of those people you want to follow. Absolutely. And... As mentioned, this is the last episode for 2020, and we hope that all you guys that have been following along with us through this whole journey as we start this podcast have managed this year. We hope that our podcast has brought something to your life, some sort of excitement. Mm -hmm. Maybe you learned something. I don't know. Whatever it is, we hope you join us again in 2021 when we fire things back up. We've got a solid lineup of guests that's already being compiled, and we got a lot of stuff we still want to talk about and movies to review. Mm -hmm. If you haven't already, please, please, at this point, we're begging. Like, we're we're begging you, please, for the love of all that is holy, do it. We've got (laughs) a lot of people listening, and just click that follow button. That's all you got to do. And then you won't have to ever wait. You won't have to ever be in fear of not knowing. You will see that a new episode is dropped on Monday. Mm-hmm. You will know. 
Yeah, and also go check us out on Instagram at the Sinnoh Vibes, and just we post all of our stuff and happenings. Anything that goes on with the podcast will be thrown up in the stories. If you ever want to message us or send us an email, you can hit us up at cinevibescast at gmail.com. Definitely send over any of your comments, concerns, any of that sort of stuff to us, and we'd love to get back to you. Thank you guys so much for sticking with us through this season, and... We're out.